The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. In virtual worship, our sanctuary empty, we gather together this Sunday in June 2020 to illumine the imagination by the beauty of God, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to warm the heart by the love of God, to devote the will to the purposes of God, we gather to worship Almighty God. The liturgy, music, and homily are offered in the praise of God for our virtual congregation through WBUR 90.9 FM and our listenership now and later at WBUR.org. We welcome your prayerful and material support, your written or emailed responses, your self-selection of forms of leadership, ministry, and service in our midst. And as the Spirit moves, and when and as it is again permitted and safe to do so, your presence with us here in worship. As we enter a sacred hour this Lord's Day, we are particularly mindful and prayerful for those who are suffering the effects of racism and social difficulties of our time, and for those who are suffering the effects of health and safety concerns of our time. Today's service of worship includes the greeting and sermon new this week, along with music and liturgy rebroadcast from earlier services. Although our nave is empty, the music is full. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.
May we pray. Almighty God, you have built your church upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Grant us so to be joined together in unity of spirit by their teaching, that we may be made a holy temple acceptable to you through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Beloved, it is our practice and discipline as we gather for ordered worship to order our lives, beginning with the illumination of the beauty of God and continuing to confession before Almighty God, recognizing that we are human, that is, mortal and prone to harm others. So we pause for individual silent prayers of confession as we gather in corporate worship upon the Lord's day. As the choir sings for us our traditional Kyrie, Lord have mercy, may we bow together in prayer. Let us pray. Beloved, let us be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Hear good news. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A lesson from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. 
he cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 6, verses 12 through 23. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are no longer under law but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. 
For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. Please join me in reading verses from Psalm 13 with the antiphon. forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long must Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Please stand as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew chapter 10 verses 40 to 42. Glory to you, O Christ. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Hear the Gospel. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. At Marsh Chapel in June, we have a fairly long-standing set of Sunday traditions honored this year for the obvious reasons in the breach. On the first Sunday of June, we gather for Holy Communion and monthly dish-to-pass luncheon with a presentation by Sharon Wheeler of Boston University on planned giving and a review of forms of ministry in our midst. On the second Sunday of June, we gather ahead of worship for a discussion of suggestions for summer reading led by the dean or a staff member or a lay leader in the congregation. On the third Sunday of June, we gather for Father's Day brunch 
welcoming all of every age and station, fathers or not, ahead of worship. And on the fourth Sunday of June, we offer a foreshortened vacation Bible school after worship and over lunch, with one leading the singing and another teaching the Bible. Well, this June 2020, none of this has come to pass. A bit of a loss for our community, June being the optimal time before vacation and after graduation to focus on the congregation itself, university and summer notwithstanding. Still though, it has been pleasant to think of these none so rare as a day in June rituals amid pandemic and pandemonium. More, it seemed perhaps fitting to offer a sermon this fourth Sunday in June to pick up at least one of these threads, that of reading. At least in a fallow time, we may find more time to read. Who taught you to read? Not how to read, but to read, to love to read. Who taught you to read? In 1965, our sixth grade teacher, Marjorie Schaefer, began each morning by reading to the class. She read for about 30 minutes, standing in the middle of the front of the room, glasses fixed and eyes down, though she could readily spot any movement, misbehavior, misbehavior drowsiness, or discourtesy. While other books remain in some misty memory, Harriet the Spy, for example, only one of the books she read from stem to stern hangs in the mind to this day. This was J.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. My seat was somewhere in the middle rows, somewhere midway back, neither by choice nor personal assignment, but by the luck of the alphabet and a last name starting with H. Jill Hance sat right in front of me as she had more or less every year of grammar school. The Hobbit captured my imagination the figure of Bilbo Baggins, the setting out on a journey from home to somewhere, the various tangles and intrigues, the mystical setting, the return. It was a sad day when the book ended. In the spring, I learned that our family was moving out of town, the only town I had ever really known, and the place of school and friendship since, since kindergarten. For some reason, I became sick and unable to go to school for about 10 days. One afternoon, Mrs. Schaefer came to our home to read to me from the last book of the year that year, Harriet the Spy, to make sure I did not miss the conclusion. A few years later, rummaging in the 10-year-old pile of Saturday Evening Post magazines in our summer cabin, there appeared a simple story. The title, author, and details are gone, only the plot remains. High school quarterback and class president is challenged by his friends to date a very plain, bespectacled, socially awkward girl, a loner in their class. On a bet and on a whim, he does so. At first, all goes well. He's able to take her out and return to his friends and laugh with them about their trick. But then something happens, or some things happen. Given his attention, her attire and appearance change. She starts to dress well. She doffs her spectacles. She dotes on him and is enthralled with his stories. In short order, she becomes something of a beauty. Given her transformation, his own behavior changes. The dates are no longer tricks, the words no longer jokes. He stops seeing his friends afterward. They fall in love. They fall fully and passionately in love. Well, behold the power of narrative. One summer in high school, 1971, Tolkien struck again, this time in the form of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. If memory serves, I read the three books that one summer. They carried me away into another place and kind of place, and into another mind and kind of, kind of mind, and into another story and kind of story. The struggle of light and darkness, of what is good and what is not, compellingly conveyed, stayed in the memory and the heart. Then two summers later, heading into a Great Books of Russia autumn course taught at Ohio Wesleyan by Dr. Ruth Davies, a professor of fearsome reputation, I took to lifeguarding work at church camp that summer, the brothers Karamazov. It seems as though it took me the whole summer to read it and to savor it and to capture and be captured by it. You could feel the power in the pain of Raskolnikov and the love in Alyosha without knowing 
much of anything yet about life and books and all. Needless to say, the book served as a fitting preparation for an introduction to the course, which of all college courses in its readings, requirements, and sessions was easily the best and the hardest. I skipped to For Whom the Bell Tolls, set in the hills up outside Segovia, Spain, where I lived and studied 1974-75, the last year in the life of Francisco Franco and of his Spain, and where I read this, perhaps, my favorite book. During the fall term of seminary, year one, when I should have been reading the detailed notes about the 39 books of the Hebrew scripture, about which prior I knew next to nothing, and during which season my relationship with my soon-to-be wife, Jan, was settling and congealing, heading toward marriage the next summer, found myself up late at night reading for the first time Moby Dick, in another sense, my reading life began with this book, though in detail and in full, it would be hard to say why. Yet it proved to be an excellent backstage for a theological study of the formal sort, still proffered then at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Two years or so out of seminary, say 1981, before the long journey into doctoral work, I found myself at the cottage in dead summer, reading line by line Karl Barth's Epistle to the Romans. It landed with the same demolition on my soul and ministry as it had landed on the playground of the theologian, theologians earlier in the century. You cannot speak of God by speaking of man in a loud voice, he wrote. I was not and am not a Bardian, but I am a lover of the scripture in part due to my reading of Bart that summer. For many years into the next decade, it seems, any free time for reading, not sermonic or ministerial, was flooded into the dissertation. There was gain and loss in that gain and loss. I found myself reading less fiction. That changed again in the 1990s for whatever reason. The two books of Alastair MacLeod, Island and No Great Mischief, with their silently beautiful rendering of the geography of Cape Breton and of the inner geography of its people, stunned and captivated. And from there, I found my way back along the trails of older classics, especially Middlemarch, George Eliot, whose close reading of close living in close cloistered secular culture kept my, my imagination and interest. And so many others, the remembrance of things past, Proust, the autobiography of Malcolm X, Haley, and on and on, and who taught you not how to read, but how to love to read. Those who fall in love with reading will often, over time, find the pages of Holy Writ because in these there is a durability, a realism, a poignant sense of suffering, and a depth that are at least and more a match for our own experience as this very hour in our lessons from holy, holy scripture. Take decisions, for example. While Genesis 22, a most difficult passage, allows of multiple readings, they all have in the background the tragedy of choices. People choose, but they do not choose their choices. For three months, you have been choosing, and you have had that freedom, and must use it with courage. But you do not choose the context, say COVID-19, of the choices. So each day carries a dim reminder that our choices, not fully ours, will have ramifications, even mortal ramifications, in the lives of others. My friend said last week in full heart confession, I am suffering from decision fatigue. I am suffering from decision fatigue. Maybe you know that feeling today. Abraham, caught between faith and love, between God and Son, at least reminds us that we are not the first at this grim altar of choice. Take change, for example. While Romans 6, a most difficult passage, allows of multiple readings, they all have in the background the great watershed 
God, freedom, love, grace, heaven, into which Paul has been washed and to which by apocalyptic poetry he bears faithful witness. You can change, you can be changed. The world can change, the world can be changed. A country can change, a country can be changed. The orb of sin, the wages of which are also grim, may be displaced. Life may become an orbit around the planet of love. Here, love God, love neighbor. Love and do what you will. Paul, exiled from his God, has now been enslaved in love by the God beyond God. Take contagion, for example. While Matthew 10, a most difficult passage, allows of multiple readings, they all have in the background the power of contagious love. It is a hundred years at least in Boston since the citizenry has been so aware of the dark mystery of contagion. One finger touches another, one hand by doorknob traces another, one chill cough caught in the breeze catches up to another. Beloved, we are probably many months and tragically hundreds of thousands of deaths away yet from getting away from COVID-19. Contagion is our condition. But read the Holy Scripture of Matthew 10. Hear the power of contagion of a good sort, of a good sort, is the metaphor for God in the world. Not to be sure the malevolent contagion of infection virus illness, but the power, the power of it, that kind of power. And you have seen it here and there now and then, where one contagious prophet and prophecy touches another, where one contagious justice touches another, where one hand of faith, act of kindness, moments of self-abnegation touches and gives birth to another. Before you miss the chance in a short lifetime to befriend the Bible, reckon with its durability, realism, poignant sense of suffering and depth that are at least and more a match for your own experience. Especially today's gospel, Matthew 10. The authority of Jesus' ministry is here transferred to disciples in Matthew 10 ancient and modern disciples, transferred to you. We meet Jesus today on the hinges of the first gospel as the flow of the gospel swings from Lord to apostles. In the announcement of this good news is included a measure of empowerment for each one of us. This is the kind of day on which for once, for the first time, or for once in a long time, we may be seized by a sense of divine nearness the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come near to you. When that sentence makes a home in a heart or in the heart of a community, a different kind of life ensues. Capture in the mind's eye for the moment the sweep of the gospel in Matthew 10. First, Jesus has been about teaching and preaching and healing. His compassion abounds. The endless range of needs about him he unblinkingly faces. Second, Jesus calls and sends the disciples and empowers them and by extension empowers us. The gospel will have been read thus, as it is thus read by us. He instructs and directs them in their work, where to go, what to do, how to be, learning virtue and piety together. Start at home, heal the sick, travel light. Third. Jesus expects and forecasts for them and for us less than utter victory in their work. They are to know how to shake the dust from their feet. Fourth, Jesus warns that there will be a price to pay. The discipline that is the hallmark of the disciple here is named. Shall we not remember Jesus' ministry? Shall we ignore the call and power offered here Shall we forget the directions given? Shall we expect to turn a deaf ear to the caution about consequences? Let us pray not. 
The main sweep of the gospel today is clear as a bell. Jesus gives power to his disciples, to you. Hold that thought. The clear call of Christ upon our consciences and the main flow of the gospel is here for the main point is crystal clear. To follow Jesus means to take up where he and his earliest companions left off. Jesus has taught, preached, and healed. This ministry he has bequeathed to his disciples, his apostles. We, you and I, have been seized by the confession of the church. We are a community of faith, Christians. Now his ministry, this ministry, is ours, is yours. Which part of this ministry draws you? Do you love Jesus? Then you must do something for him as many at Boston University did or tried to this past Wednesday, June 24th. For that day, in consonance with the preaching of Marsh Chapel over a long time, and especially in the last three months, Boston University this week offered a full day of teaching and reflection on racism and anti-racism. What was central and striking Wednesday, June 24th, in the rich hours of presentation and discussion were the many and extemporaneous references to apocalyptic revelatory insights recalled by the speakers, aha moments from their reading, in reading. Alongside our own ministry through Marsh Chapel and religious life and the, that of the now beautifully expanded Howard Thurman Center, which you celebrated right here in worship on January 19, 2020. The voices and leadership of the faculty, staff, presidential and provostial leadership of Boston University, and that of the African American Studies Program, the Associate Provost for Diversity and Inclusion, and the new BU Center for Anti-Racism came together in a great watershed, a confluence all the day long, new in my experience. It was wonderful. I commend to you its recorded version. And let me leave you with 10 sentences out of hundreds that might have been quoted from that day, rooted in a shared reading life. There is nothing innate about our racial hierarchy. The final act of violence is the very denial of violence. The heartbeat of racism is denial. Racism creates a group differentiated vulnerability and thereby premature death. Freedom, real freedom, is a whole lot more than civil rights alone. It is unjust to ask those marginalized by the current system now alone to fix it. And if, even if you can't do empathy, can you at least do justice? People are re rediscovering their own power. We are at a point now that comes from a movement 50 years ago. And last, as a cautionary note, particularly fitting in a sermon on reading, we can't just read our way out of this. We can't just read our way out of this. Beloved, is yours a reading life liberally fed by what is read? Is yours a reading life liberally fed by what is read? Happy summer reading 2020. And hear the gospel. He who receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. Amen.
we now come to the time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and lift up our lives and ourselves to God. Please assume an attitude and posture of prayer by either remaining seated, standing, kneeling, or coming to the communion rail as we sing together our call to prayer, Lead Me, Lord. As a mother setting food before her hungry children, God satisfies our most basic needs and our deepest longings. Confident that we have a solicitous God, we pray now for our church and our world, saying together, Lord, hear our prayer. Because we need to be nourished by your word and sacrament, we pray for our church that we might both be willing to eat of your food and drink of your wine, and in turn be food and drink for one another. In faith we pray to you, O God. Lord, hear our prayer. Because we live and act in ways that are not in accordance to your will, we pray that our world may not continue in ignorance, but discern what is truly good and just. In faith, we pray to you, O God. Lord, hear our prayer. Because we are prone to be competitive and unconcerned about one another, we pray for all leaders that we might find in them examples of generous service and self-forgetfulness. In faith, we pray to you, O God. Lord, hear our prayer. Because there are so many poor and hungry people in our world, we pray that we may be generous in giving, compassionate in serving, and sensitive in understanding the needs of others. In faith, we pray to you, O God. Lord, hear our prayer. Because our world is pervaded by a spirit of skepticism and mistrust, we pray that we might come together in love, conversation, and compassion. In faith, we pray to you, O God. Lord, hear our prayer. Because we have often been nourished and supported by our ancestors who have gone before us, we pray that they continue to be a cloud of witness to us and all that we encounter in our earthly pilgrimage. In faith, we pray to you, O God. Lord, hear our prayer. All loving God, the source of our being, we praise and thank you for your care. Hear the prayers that we have made in faith. As a gracious mother, feed us with the bread of life so that we may abide with you forever. We make this prayer, as always, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now, with the confidence of children of God, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Merciful God, everything in heaven and earth belongs to you. We joyfully release what you have entrusted to us. May these gifts be signs of our whole lives returned to you, dedicated to the healing and unity of all creation. Through Jesus Christ, amen. May the sun show warm and bright on you, your darkest night a star shine through, your dullest morn a radiance brew, and when dusk comes, God's hand to you, the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of us now and forever. Amen. 